the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The swirl of violent instincts and lax gun laws in America makes it really imperative that the laws, both local and federal, work in concert to protect vulnerable citizens, especially victims of things like domestic violence. But in a new book co-authored by Brown University professor Wendy Schiller, the stark failure of those systems to provide consistent protection becomes crystal clear. Schiller will join us today to discuss her book and how we keep more victims of violence safe. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and I'm really glad you've joined us today. America strikes such a profile in contrast on the world stage. When you think of, on one hand, all the wealth and opportunity it has accumulated, but then compare that to the stark vulnerabilities that some of our citizens face on a daily basis. In some ways, the roots of this problem are material. There are more guns than there are people in this country. There are also many people, many children in particular, who live in poverty. And that creates a population that is left wanting, that is desperate for a different life. And you add to that mix the violence that we see in this country, especially in a domestic context. It's a form of homegrown terror in our country, and it's one that requires consistent design and enforcement of laws to protect the vulnerable. Just take a look at a few statistics. One in three women and one in four men experience some form of violence in their lifetime. And that pain is illuminated most easily in the home, where 10 million people regularly fall victim to domestic violence. But how do we make the laws consistent and consistently enforce them to be sure that, for instance, victims in one state aren't less protected than people in other states? How should our local and national laws work together to build an infrastructure that is strong and resilient and protects people no matter where they live? Wendy Schiller is a professor and chair of political science, as well as a professor of international and public affairs at Brown University, and she's written a lot about this subject. Her recent co-authored book is titled Inequality Across State Lines, How Policymakers Have Failed Domestic Violence Victims in the United States. She's here now to talk about how domestic violence has evolved over time in our country and how the phenomenon differs significantly depending on where you live. Professor Schiller, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. It's good to be here. So you and your colleague, Caitlin Sidorsky, write that, quote, we believe there is a fundamental gap in our understanding of the politics of violence against women. I think that's a good place to start the conversation. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I think that for many, many years, excuse me, um, for many years, we looked at this problem as a private problem. You know, it was within the home. It was within a marriage for the most part up until, let's say, the 1980s, uh, early 1990s. And the government didn't have a role in intervening. And it took, a, it took the women's movement. It took the women's rape and sexual assault movement uh, to really push 
our public communities to say, no, this is a, not only a public health problem, but it's actually a criminal problem. And the criminal part comes way later than the public health problem. And that didn't happen really. The first domestic violence shelter officially didn't open until 1978. Um, and in the 1980s, it was finally a movement to say, okay, we've got to help mostly women. The vast majority of victims are women. Um, we've got to help them. And we've got to help them be able to leave an abusive situation and resettle themselves. And that has been a long time coming. Uh, and that really differs across state lines. There's a coalition against domestic violence in every single state. Um, and the federal government finally passed a law in 1984, thereabouts, a Family Violence Protection Act that dealt with the immediate aftermath of domestic violence. You had to escape the home, you know, providing money for shelter, for counseling. And they designated organizations in every state uh, as sort of the big coordinators of the, this effort and also the recipients of money. It wasn't until 1994 with the Violence Against Women Act that domestic violence was really criminalized. And there's a lot of controversy over the criminalization of domestic violence, which we can talk about. But that think about that. It's just not even 30 years ago mm. that it really became a federal crime uh, to commit domestic violence against your partner. So before we go deeper into this uh, kind of patchwork of legal uh, in, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure and enforcement. I, I want to talk a little about uh, domestic violence. 10 million people are victims of domestic violence every year in this country. I want to go deeper into that number. Who is primarily being targeted and what kinds of harms are we talking about there? So domestic violence is, is now broadly defined although, of course, every state has slightly different definition of the scope of domestic violence. But, um, but essentially, it can be um, anything from uh, uh, psychological abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and financial uh, coercive control, um, which is that all of the finances, all of the access to funds are in the hands of the abuser and not the person who's being abused. Um, somewhere between 70 and 74% of all domestic violence victims are women. Um, and the, uh, the remaining are um, men, at least self-identified gender. And of course, there are children that are involved, obviously, in domestic violence. The vast majority are women. And the, the violence um, is a manifestation of an overall environment of control. So we see bouts of violence, which is one of the big problems with domestic violence and the numbers so high, is that it can be a sporadic eruption of physical violence or, or sexual violence. But it, it is a general fear, a general living under, as you so eloquently put it, you know, the fear of, of, of the threat that something will happen to you and you're living in terror all the time. And that takes a toll. Some estimates have been, you know, in the billions of dollars on women's productivity, women's mental health, for example, lost time at work, uh, sick time to recover from injuries or mental stress. You know, it's something that really um, affects Everybody. It's not just the people who are victims of domestic violence. It's your coworkers. It's people you know your kids go to school with. It's of course ultimately, um, as we will talk about later, manifests sometimes in you know uh, shootings and mass shootings. Mm -hmm. The sources of those can sometimes be mass uh, domestic violence abusers. So we all actually live with consequences of domestic violence, even if we are not immediately subject to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about how that dynamic has changed over the last couple of decades? Has it drastically gone down or up? Is it mostly uh, a consistent problem? What, what, what does the, the trend line look like on this kind of domestic well, violence? Stephen, this, this is a great and important question um, because if you look at uh, crime reporting, and again, I refer to acts of violence uh, in the domestic violence um, context as a crime. Um, a lot of cases go unreported. So the number you have is 10 million is an estimate, but we expect it's actually larger. Um, and the, the federal government does surveys uh, from time to time. And of course, some people are willing to say that there's abuse in the home, some are not. So as much as 40 or 45% of all cases go unreported, that's how big this is. And it is, there are things like losing a job, uh, economic difficulty, absolutely living in uh, low-income situations absolutely exacerbates it. 
but it is not confined to people who are in low income households at all. There are people in moderate income and high income households who are subject to tremendous amounts of abuse. So this is the other thing. There seems to be a stratification in the public um, sense of domestic violence, that it only happens in some communities, uh, and a little bit of both victim, uh, victim blaming that comes with that, but that's not really true. It's just better hidden in some of these upper level um, income communities. I'm talking with- And uh, over time- Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, just to answer your question more to the point really quickly, over time we have seen reported uh, deaths and cases of in severe injury go down since the 1990s. So some of the legislation that we saw enacted then has helped, but uh, just one statistic stands out, you know, thousands of women die um, over the over usually four or five year period of study uh, from domestic violence and 50% of those women died by gun. Wow. So what we're seeing is still a very significant loss of life due to domestic violence, but there is good news. There is good news in the sense that the reported cases have gone significantly down as all crime uh, from you know, us to realize all crime has gone down quite a bit in the last 30 years. Uh, but in that case, yes, it, it has gotten better over the last three years. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Wendy Schiller. She's a professor and chair of political science and also a professor of international and public affairs at Brown University. Her recent co-authored book is Inequality Across State Lines, How policy, Policymakers Have Failed Domestic Violence Victims in the United States. That's what we're talking about, the inconsistent uh, laws and enforcement of laws uh, that make uh, protecting victims of uh, domestic violence uh, inconsistent uh, across our country. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Uh, what do you make of the problem of domestic violence? Uh, are you someone who's been a victim of domestic violence or you know someone who was? How did that impact uh, their family, the, their lifestyle, how they interact with the world? And what do you think are the things we should be doing to better protect people against domestic abuse. Uh, a little later in the conversation, uh, we're going to add a, a local voice to the conversation here uh, and talk about uh, what the landscape looks like here in Michigan. April Zioli, who's an associate professor of health management and policy at the University of Michigan, will join us uh, to talk more about that. But we also want to hear from, from folks here uh, just about their experience with the laws in Michigan. Uh, are there gaps that, that you have noticed? Uh, have you lived in Michigan and maybe other states and uh, noticed that there is a, a profound difference between the way these things are handled? 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. So, uh Wendy, I want to talk about this this inconsistency and both among states, uh, but then also uh, between states and and the federal government. It seems to me that that there are kind of two prongs to the legal discussion here, and they are both uh, they, they they kind of both work together to create uh, a, a pretty profound problem, I guess, uh, would be the way, the way to put it. But, but help us uh, understand what the landscape looks like now uh, and how that has changed over time. Um, okay, so I, I also, this is a, a big, broad question. I'll try to be succinct. Um, for the <laughs> listeners, for the listeners, thinking about when you think, oh, the federal government should fix this. You know, let's get it to the federal level. If the federal government can come in, obviously we saw tremendous efforts in the civil rights movement. It was instrumental and extremely important to have all branches of the federal government come in uh, uh, to start that process of healing and remedying discrimination. So we, we come to think, I think particularly Democrats, progressives, think the federal government's the answer. And what this book and what, our, what we're trying to tell people is that it really comes down to state implementation and even local municipal implementation of laws that, that will um, implement the federal law. So it's not automatic when the federal government passes a law. And I think a lot of us kind of get more comfortable when that happens. Mm -hmm. Oh, it'll all be fixed now. And our story is that, particularly for women, it's better, but it's not fixed. So there's a Violence Against Women Act that was sponsored by now President Joe Biden, but then Senator Joe Biden. He started sponsoring the bill, introducing the bill in, in 1990, took him a couple of Congresses to get it passed. It was passed as part of the crime bill of 1994, which is, of course, 
Uh, some people argued led to a lot more mass incarceration. So it's a controversial big bill, but it was piggybacked onto that bill. And the Violence Against Women Act set up um, offices in the U.S. Department of Justice. That's really important. There are already programs in the Department of Health and Human Services. That's for, I think, public health and treatment and immediate response. But in justice, it was about criminalizing and also preventing, you know, and giving law enforcement better tools to deal with domestic violence. So that was the Violence Against Women Act. It funds nearly half a billion dollars today. You know, it's $500 million in grants that go to organizations and localities um, out of the Office on Violence Against Women. So that's the structure. But, it, but what's important is that it passed a law that basically said, for example, that if you are under a restraining order because you've been violent or signs of violence and a judge has granted a restraining order, you are not allowed to have a weapon, a gun. And so, however, um, or if you're convicted of a felony, you're not allowed to have a gun. So what happens, though, is that if states don't have the same parallel laws on the books or judges don't impl you know, implement it, that doesn't get enforced. That's the key takeaway here, mm -hmm. is that you need states to be on board. Another example uh, is um, misdemeanor. In 1996, there was an amendment passed, the Lautenberg Amendment, very famous amendment, that says if you are convicted of a misdemeanor, particularly domestic violence, you cannot have a gun. But only 28 states have passed parallel laws. So that means only 28 states are really enforcing that provision of federal law. And this is nearly 30 years later. So I can go through, and we don't have time, all the lists. There's about eight key laws we mm -hmm. look at mm -hmm. that would, would put you in line with the federal government. And what does the federal government do about this, as far as we can tell? Nothing. We haven't found any evidence that the federal government, I mean, they encourage states to do this, but we haven't found any evidence that the federal government is punishing states in any way that don't take up these, um, these same laws or failing to implement them. And there are no standards in, in many states, no standards for judges to make these decisions. We've seen some cases in Michigan, I know your readers are familiar, your listeners, excuse me, are familiar with some of these really tragic cases where women go and say, I, I worry that this man will kill me. He has access to a gun. Please take away his gun or forbid him from having a gun. Uh, a judge doesn't issue that order. And then sadly, tragically, a couple of weeks later, we had this case, obviously, in Michigan, a number of cases uh, more recently. Recently, uh, this past summer, where of course the man returned and and, and sadly killed his wife, um, wow. uh, a child, and his wife's mother and himself. Yeah. These are tragic, but I we argue we can at the local level and the state level we can um, advocate for better enforcement. I'm not saying brand new laws. We're not saying that. Um, we're not even saying everybody should go to jail necessarily all the time. We're not saying everybody's guns should be taken away all the time. But if there is a circumstance where women are in immediate danger, and that's obvious to the criminal justice system or the legal system, we're arguing that the federal government gives the umbrella to do these things, and the states have to follow through. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Professor Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Uh, also, we'll get going on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in this conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Yes, this is Wendy Schiller, a professor of political science and chair of political science at uh, Brown University. Uh, she is the co-author of a recent book titled Inequality Across State Lines, How Policymakers Have Failed Domestic Violence Victims in the United States. That is what we're talking about, uh, the patchwork of local laws that don't match up with federal laws that make it difficult to have consistent enforcement of domestic violence laws here in the, in the United States. We want to hear from you, of course, on the phones and on Twitter. Uh, give us a call uh, or hashtag us and let us know what you make of uh, enforcement of uh, anti-domestic uh, violence laws here in Michigan in particular. What's your experience been like here? Uh, and what do you think we should be doing differently? I also want to introduce another voice to the conversation. Uh, April Zioli is the Associate Professor of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan. She's also the Policy Corps Director uh, at the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. April, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. So I want to jump in with you here and and talk about Michigan uh, and what the state looks like in terms of domestic or intimate partner violence rates, but also then what the legal landscape looks like here as well. Sure. Um, In terms of uh, intimate partner homicide rates, Michigan generally ranks near the top 10, top, top 10, 11, 12, around there. So we have a lot of work to be done in terms of intimate partner homicide. Most of the intimate partner homicides are committed with guns. Um, And we've had an interesting legislative session uh, right now in 2023 in Michigan, where firearm laws are being discussed. Two laws were signed, two bills were signed into law just yesterday dealing with safe storage of firearms and dealing with firearm purchaser licensing, both of which could affect domestic violence, homicide. Um, and when when we compare Michigan's laws, I guess, to mm-hmm. other other states, I mean, we don't prohibit individuals convicted of domestic violence misdemeanors from purchasing or possessing firearms. Uh, we don't require courts to notify people when they become prohibited from possessing firearms. And there's there's mm-hmm. some real gaps in in the way we approach this here. There are some huge gaps in the way we approach this. Um, you know, in addition to what you mentioned, one of the gaps that I think could make a very large difference is that in Michigan, when somebody is restricted from having a gun under a personal protective order, which is our domestic violence restraining order, there's no law saying that a judge must authorize or can or is authorized to order that person to relinquish any guns they already own. So mostly what we think is happening is that people are now unable to legally own guns, Mm -hmm. but law enforcement don't visit their houses to ask for the guns, to remove the guns. They don't have to go to the court and prove they relinquished the guns. So mostly we think they're just keeping those guns. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the program that way. Let's start today with Mary in Rochester. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. My Mm -hmm. story is a long time ago. I've been divorced for 35 years, but what happened to me was um, my husband at the time was strangling me up against a wall. I begged for my life, don't do it, you'll go to jail, I'm not worth it. I said whatever I had to say to stay alive. He slumped to the kitchen floor crying, and he said, you have to leave, I'm afraid I'm going to kill you. And what did I do? Did I run out of the house? Did I call the police? No. I got down on the floor with him, comforting him, saying, oh, you're not going to kill me. So my question is, I'm wondering how many women are out there that are still protecting their abusers, uh, making an excuse for their abusers' behavior, or blaming themselves for their abusers' behavior against them. Hmm. Mary, um, I'm really sorry for that experience. And even though it is a long time ago, I can hear uh, in your voice that, that uh, the palpability of of that incident and and you know what it what it meant for your life. I, I, I certainly hope things have gotten better. But it's a great question that you ask about the dynamics involved here. We are talking, you know, mostly about the law, but but this is a cultural phenomenon as well. Uh, Wendy Schiller, I'll give you the first crack at uh, responding to Mary. Well, Mary, thank you so much for again calling again to share your story and. This really highlights strangulation, attempted strangulation is one of the most proximate or immediate precursors to um, to killing somebody in domestic violence. We know this. And the Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence, Mary, in particular for your story, created a tool called a lethality assessment program or protocol where law enforcement asks about 10 or 11 questions. And 
one of the key questions uh, is, um, have, you, have you been strangled? You know, have, has somebody tried to strangle you? Because we see that this is so important in predicting um, death from domestic violence. So, so your story is now part of a protocol that many police departments use across the country. However, not all of them use it. And that is not mandated by the federal government or even by statewide practice. It's individual departments. Um, you know, adoptees, and they have been very effective. Other scholars, including um, April Zioli and, and, and uh, Caroline Diaz and, and her co-authors, have found that these laws really do save these, I'm sorry, this protocol really does save lives. Hmm. So our question is, why isn't it the law in Michigan? I don't know if it is or not, but why isn't the law in every state that every police department, when they answer a domestic violence call, have to administer these what they call LAPs? And then if, if the answers to the questions add up to a, a threat of death, then the, uh, the officers stay with the victim. And to your point, Mary, say, listen, we have to get you out of here. We are really afraid this person's going to kill you. We have to get you out of here now. Mm. And that's the, that's the point that, that, that a policy can save lives. So your story is now part of the, the protocol for domestic violence. Wow, wow. Uh, April, uh, I wonder if you can lend a, a local lens to to what Wendy is talking about, but but also uh, talk about the ways in which, uh, you know, the laws protect abusers in some cases uh, or make it harder to deal with, uh, to deal with abusers. Yeah, you know, so in Michigan, we don't make it mandatory that law enforcement administer a lethality assessment at every domestic violence call. Um, it would probably save lives if we did. But it's one of the many things that we can improve upon in the future to, to save more lives. I, I want to address the, um, and thank you for your call. I want to address what you said about, you know, how many women are in these circumstances where they're comforting the abuser and you know, making excuses for the abuser. Because the dynamics of domestic violence are so insidious they it's a relationship that started off as a loving relationship and it evolves into something you know terrible and terroristic and so we have these situations where the victim has been just beaten down often physically, more often emotionally, to believe that, you know, they are worthless, to believe that they're at fault, that if only they would be better, their their partner wouldn't abuse them. And so when we do see, when people do see their abusers as vulnerable, where they're, when their abusers are apologizing, it can be really easy to go back to that position of love because that never left. You love your abuser. It started off as a loving relationship. That's why people are still there more often than not. And so staying is common and giving that human emotion and sympathy and empathy is common. Um, and I forget what the second part of your question was. Uh, about the way the laws here in Michigan are are sometimes, you know, and whether I guess uh, they are they are tilted toward protecting oh, right. abusers rather than protecting victims. Yes, and I think that is the case for pretty much every state. Um, the laws allow more protections to the abuser. Uh, than the victim. And one of the reasons for that is because domestic abuse is often something that doesn't leave a lot of physical evidence, particularly when a gun is involved. Um, if somebody points a gun at you, there are no bruises. You know, there, there are no marks. You know, there are usually no witnesses. And so if you go to the police and say, you know, this person pointed a gun at me, what evidence do you have to back that up? And you have the abuser saying, you know, no, I, I didn't. And so it's difficult to prove some of these things. 
you know, and that is one of the natures of domestic violence. Another difficulty is that abusers often use the court system against the victims. So, you know, they may file restraining orders uh, against the victim in response you know, to restraining orders or in child custody cases, for example, uh, they may prolong the case. They may fight it. They may accuse the victim of domestic violence. It really is common that people use the court system to stay in their victim's lives, to drain their victim of finances because they need lawyers mm. and, and going to court takes time. Um, so it can be really a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, can I just piggyback? Go ahead, Wendy. I just Wendy. want to piggyback, Stephen, one yeah. second. Uh, exa- expand on April's, exactly that point about court system. Just for those people who, there's two sort of separate tracks, but for those people who think, well, it doesn't, I, I don't have any signs of it. I don't know anybody who's a victim of this. But, you know, we did a survey of public defenders and district attorneys, and we got a percentage uh, that said they should between 40 and 40 44% of all of their cases were domestic violence related in some way. So, uh, and we've just done a survey of judges and they say about 35, so we have to fix these numbers and all add up exactly, but, but 30, 33 to 35% of their cases are domestic violence. That's a huge time soak, literally, not just safety, for the court system in America. That so much of our uh, court system is dealing with this and law enforcement, as April points out, not only is it not consistent, but they're walking into a potential ambush when they go try to confiscate a gun. You know, Georgia State has a study that says 25% of all injury and death of police officers on a yearly basis is due to either responding to domestic violence calls or going to serve a warrant to get a gun. So judges say, well, we don't want to order the police to go get the gun because it's too dangerous. So it's a very, um, you know, uh, exactly you said, fragmented system that actually imposes costs on all of us, even if we are not necessarily um, in a community where we're aware of domestic violence. Yeah. Okay, we need to take another quick break, but we will be back with more Detroit Today, continuing this conversation with Wendy Schiller and April Zioli. Uh, We also will continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Scott in Westland will be up next if you want to join him. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. million victims of domestic violence each year in the United States. What do we do in the states and at the federal level to make sure that that number is moving in the negative direction? What do we do to make sure that fewer people are in situations where they are victims of domestic violence. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. Glad you have joined us. Our guests today are Wendy Schiller, a professor and chair of political science at Brown University. Also with us is April Zioli, associate professor of health management and policy at the University of Michigan. Uh, Schiller is the co-author of a book uh, that is about uh, domestic violence and the patchwork of laws in our country. It's called Inequality Across State Lines, How Policymakers Have Failed Domestic Violence Victims in the United States. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and let us know what your experience has been with domestic violence uh, laws here in Michigan. Uh, Are you someone who has been a victim of domestic violence and had to rely on uh, the laws that we have to deal with it. Uh, What did you notice about those laws? Uh, What did you notice about what could be better or different about those laws? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. Let's go to Scott in Westland. Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, glad to be here. Hi. Hi. 
Well, I guess I'd like to say that um, uh, all constitutional rights are not created equal. That uh, basically public safety and personal safety are being encroached upon by the Second Amendment. And so my, one of my worries about these uh, new laws that they're passing in Michigan and elsewhere is basically they're going to have to jump that hurdle of the conservative majority in the Supreme Court, in the United States Supreme Court. Now, I think we need to assert the right to personal safety as the more fundamental right. It's a more fundamental right than the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And in fact, now I'm going to borrow some language here. It says that, you know, the Second Amendment says, cites the security of a free state as the goal of the amendment. So the right to bear arms is only empowered to the extent that it is instrumental or has utility, uh, you know, in the maintenance of, you know, people's personal safety and for the public safety. And, okay, I'm going to lift this from the Fourth Amendment because the Fourth Amendment is about unreasonable searches and seizures, but it, it elaborates it better. It says, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects shall not be violated. There's a few ellipsis dots in there. But, okay, basically, um, the, the Second Amendment was only ever meant to serve the public safety. And so the Second Amendment right now, the right to bear arms, is encroaching upon the public safety. Mm. Yeah. With these, you know, mass shootings that we've been having. And, of course, in the case of domestic violence, basically you're talking about somebody's personal safety sure. versus somebody's right to bear arms. And I would say that personal safety prevails. It's the more fundamental right. right. And it's actually, in fact, what empowers the Second Amendment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Scott, I, I, I love that you raised that issue. Uh, you know, um, the easy access to guns in this country ties directly into... Uh, the, the the troubles that we have with domestic violence. I also love the framing uh, that you put on that on that question. The question of whether one right uh, bumps up against others, um, and and we could have a long conversation about uh, active and passive rights and the way that uh, that those get interpreted in in federal constitutional law. But but your very basic premise, which is that. Uh, um, that the right to bear arms is uh, overshadowing uh, the right to personal and, and private safety is a really important, it's an, a really important uh, part of, of what we're talking about and thinking about here. Um, uh, April, uh, mm-hmm. as I said uh, at the open, uh, you are also uh, policy core director of the Institute for Firearm uh, Injury. Uh, talk about the, the the problem we have with guns and and Scott's observation that the right to bear arms is given more deference than the right to private safety. Sure, we know that in states where there are more guns, there are more intimate partner homicides. And when a domestic violence offender has access to a gun, the risk that he will kill his female partner increases by a factor of five. So firearms really do make these situations more deadly. And it's, it's pretty obvious why. Firearms are just more deadly weapons than any other weapon out there. I, that, that's why a lot of people want them for home defense. Now, since the founding of our country, there have been laws that have deprived people of their Second Amendment rights if they are a risk to public safety. And that's what these domestic violence firearm restrictions for uh, people who've been convicted of domestic violence misdemeanors and people who are under certain personal protection orders. That's what these laws do. But we've seen some uh, courts recently, the Fifth Circuit Court, a couple of months ago, ruled that these firearm restrictions for people under personal protection orders were unconstitutional. And one of the reasons that was given was that it wasn't about public safety. And I think that really is incredibly insulting (laughs) (laughs) to victims of domestic violence to imply that they're not part of the public, I guess, um, and that their safety doesn't matter to public safety. But we also know 
that in addition to the you know, direct domestic violence victims, that people who commit domestic violence, um, you know, more than half of the mass shootings in our country involve intimate partner and family member victims. And then an additional percentage include people with histories of domestic violence, you know, who aren't killing their family members. So domestic violence does occur you know, in the histories of a lot of our mass shooters. And that's definitely a public safety issue. And, you know, I definitely, my research is about what saves lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, personally, I think that saving lives trumps philosophy every time. Yeah, yeah. April, I, I really appreciate that. And, and, and Scott, I really appreciate your, your question. Wendy Schiller, I want to give you uh, a chance to, to answer Scott's question as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson's words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is for, is paramount. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, discussions about life and how we define life in all sorts of realms in American politics. Um, but the, the right of women to be secure in their own home is fundamental. And for those of, of you who want to see women more active in all other spheres of life, political, economic, social, you know, you can't do that if you're living in that kind of circumstance. And I think if we return to the coalitions against domestic violence that are in every state, they have had an enormous responsibility of providing and coordinating services, but also lobbying for some of these laws for domestic violence uh, definitions to be expanded to people who aren't married, for example, or cohabitating or share children in common. And now to dating partners. Now, of course, uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's called the boyfriend loophole, and it existed uh, since the 1990s where if you were just just a boyfriend, you were not covered by any of these restrictions, uh, particularly on gun access and ownership. And thankfully, the United States Congress and the president signed, in my view, thankfully, signed legislation uh, in the Bipartisan uh, Safer Communities Act uh, after the tragic shooting in Uvalde, which started with an act of domestic violence, um, that, that, that closes that loophole. But now it's federal law that these prohibitions have to extend to dating partners if you've been in a relationship with somebody so I think these are the kinds of changes that maybe people don't notice, but they actually save lives. And if, if you're out there and you're thinking, what can I do? What would make sense? Pay attention to your state legislature. Pay attention to your local judges. And those judges in many places are elected. See what their record is on granting restraining orders. Custodies, for example, you know, April's uh, really point about shared custody is one way, unfortunately, of staying in someone's life and also committing violence against the children and the ex-spouse. So these are really things that the courts have to be better about. But you as a listener and as an average American citizen, um, you can go, uh, you can support the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and you can also just pay attention to what your elected officials who could do something, what are they doing on this issue? What are their stances and how can they do better? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Scott, really appreciate the call and the, the questions. Uh, let's go next to Dina in Roseville. Dina, welcome to the show. Hi, um, good morning. Hi. I would just like to pretty much say I can speak on my family, what we're dealing with right now today mm-hmm. with my cousin five years ago. Same situation. Cycle has repeated. Um, my cousin was killed in an abusive relationship, family begging, pleading, please get out, please. You could do better. You don't deserve this. Five years, got that phone call. She was dead in an abusive relationship, mother begging, mm-hmm. pleading. We're all doing all we can on our knees, just begging every day. Where are we at today? Same daughter, same situation, has a child married in an abusive relationship to the point where her son don't took it to the school. Child Protective Service is all in her house, and she's still saying, but I love him. He's my husband. He's beating her. He's abusing her. And it's so sad because at the end of the day, it's like we don't love ourselves. And you, it only affects you. It affects the family. It affects all of us. And it's like we're crying out. We're pleading, praying. And it's just so sad. And I just pray that our young generation, older generation, is no age on it. We need to do better. I don't know. I, I just hope and pray we can just do a woman's thing maybe every weekend just to get someone to really speak out. 
because it's so sad when you have a loved one going through it and you're there every step of the way and it's like you still can't save them. Yeah. So I just plead and just beg that we can do better and we just got to keep praying and maybe get more involved mm. with our young ones, even our older people feeling relationships that's abusive yeah dina i i I really feel for uh the situation that your your family finds itself in and and i also hope of course that 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 turns around and 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 gets better but but i you know listening to dina wendy schiller um reminds me that you know a lot of what we're talking about is a cultural dynamic but i guess my my question is how the laws and how the the enforcement of laws would have an effect on that cultural dynamic. And what she's talking about is the way in which her cousin is responding to these things that are being done. I wonder if the law were different, um, we might hope for a different kind of response and dynamic uh, when, when you find these kinds of situations. Well, Stephen, I guess I, I guess I prefer the term, not to be word chastising, uh, social uh, rather okay. than cultural. Okay, that's um, fair. Just because I don't want anybody to think that that it's in particular communities in any way, sure. shape, or form. But but social. So when we think about social, we think about community. So what can we do to help? Um, your, uh, we couldn't save your cousin, but to help uh, this, this person is a um, bring this out into the open as a community issue. It's something that society has a responsibility to try to help prevent wholesale because it does it, uh, it doesn't impose so much cost on society itself. And that means more social workers, more financial opportunities and protections for women who are in that circumstance. If, if somebody in your household is controlling your bank, your phone, and particularly the cell phones now, digital tracing, um, you can, where can you go? What can you do? How can you even get out if you want to? We don't have a, a, we don't have a safety net. For women, uh, not a good enough one uh, that is that is funded by the local community and the state and the federal government, where we can relocate you even if you don't want to. And in same spaces, people don't want to leave their communities; they don't want to leave their families. So they don't want to go so far away to make themselves safer. How can we improve upon that? And that's where, if you have to leave the state, the federal government comes in. But that, as a society, thinking to ourselves, this is a social problem that really matters to all of us. And we have to do better in providing ways for women to leave where they aren't terrified of being you know, homeless and without any resources. And I think those are the ways that we can do that aren't criminal, that aren't criminal justice, that aren't legal per se, but they are policy and they are something that communities can do better on. Yeah, uh, April Zioli, we've got just a few minutes left, but I wanna give you a chance to jump in here too. Yeah, and Dina, I'm so sorry this is, happening for your family it sounds like you are doing a you know really fantastic job of being there for your cousin you know when and if she needs you i i want to adjust the criminal justice side since uh wendy schiller did such a good job on the social side um you know one of the things that happens a lot in in domestic violence is that people you know don't want to involve the criminal justice system for any number of reasons. One is that they've done it before and had a really bad experience. You know, they don't want their uh, partner arrested, uh, which you know could be because that might have financial impacts. They've been treated poorly by the justice system before, or they thought that their partner would be, you know, charged and convicted, and and that didn't happen. All all that happened was. They were in jail for 24 hours. So what we really need to do is improve our law law enforcement response to domestic violence. And we need to be able to give people, victims, options for how they want that criminal justice response to work. And it's been found that when victims have options of, you know, whether or not an arrest is made, whether or not charges are pursued, that they are more likely to work with the justice system and more likely to feel like they were listened to and have better outcomes in the future. So really paying attention to how victims 
you know, want the justice system to proceed could help them just use the justice system more instead of avoiding it because the outcomes seem like they might all be negative. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Wendy Schiller and April Zioli, it was really great to have uh, you both here for this really important conversation. And of course, Wendy, uh, congratulations on the book, Inequality Across State Lines, How Policymakers Have Failed Domestic Violence Victims in Detroit. Wendy, thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen, for having us. It was really a great opportunity. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and April Zioli, really appreciate uh, you uh, participating as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks for involving me. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to discuss writer Derek Thompson's ideas on the broad and deep role that work plays in our lives. Also, remember, if you like our show and enjoy listening every day, you ought to share it. Share it with uh, your friends and your family and your neighbors, uh, other people you think would benefit from the community that we are building here on WDET and at Detroit Today. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And shout out to our student producer, Taylor Davis, who is with us for her last day. It was really great to have her here on the show uh, for this school year. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.